torn between two continents, really. We have family in America as grandkids and all the rest of it, so we save up throughout the year, and we've just been out there to California. Oh, it was a hard call, you know. And uh, went to California, and uh, we went to Disneyland for two days at the, right at the beginning, so not only were we pretty jet-lagged, but we were at Disneyland, and we had two terrorist grandchildren with us. I tell you, it was an experience, you know. But uh, we got over that, and uh, we had a lovely time. But, you know, it's always good to be back. And, and uh, you know, we're always... It, it's, it's funny, you know, we're not of, of that kind of ilk whereby we, we, we just want to stay on holiday forever. We, we don't want to do that. We want to come back here. We love what God is doing here. We found ourselves falling in love with you guys over the years. We've been through so much together. So it's never a, a tear to come back. It's a bit of a tear to leave the family, to be honest, and that's to be expected. But it's always a joy to be back here. And I want to say thank you to Richard and, and the team and, and all you guys who helped out and kept the thing going and growing while we've been away. And it's always exciting to come back and hear stories of what God's been up to. Also, I want to say thank you to... The, the three preachers that we've had over the last three weeks. I was listening to the talks while I was away, and I was just blown away, you know, how about the, the quality and the, the authority of, of God's Word. I loved what Kev Nash had to say when he was teaching about redemption as we started this Exodus series. And, and I loved also what Anine Staitler had to say about, you know, provision and, and preservation. And that was just so powerful, you know. Great teaching, but, you know, a, a personal testimony too. And then, of course, Richard did an outstanding job last week, you know, teaching on the presence, the revelation of God at Mount Sinai as we've been going through this series. And, and I have to say, as I've, as I've listened to it, I've been struck, you know, um, by, by the correlations in some way between our own story and, and where we're at. As you know, we are at the, you know, we've launched this Growing Family campaign six weeks ago, and and, you know, we, we find ourselves now, six weeks into the campaign, at, at something, something of a crossroads, really. And it's curious because the message I have today is, is where we find Israel having been uh, delivered from the Egyptian slave masters. You know, God has saved them and brought them out of captivity. And he's, you know, brought them into the desert where they all thought they were going to starve, but God provided there. And, and, and now we come to probably one of the most trying, testing, and, and telling moments in the story so far. And so I'm going to share that with you. I'm going to pray now, and then we'll pitch into it. And uh, hopefully it'll, it'll encourage us and edify us and, and, and all the rest. So let's just pray. Father, I want to say thank you for all that you're doing in this place. It always amazes me uh, and delights me as well as challenges me, Lord, what you are about among us. We pray now, Lord God, that as I share this word today, that it will find its mark in us, that it will, for each one of us, in some way, shape, or form, some aspect of what I say will, will bring both comfort and challenge, Lord, uh, and that, Lord God, you would have your way and your will among us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So this talk is, is, is entitled Taking Canaan, and Canaan is, is the promised land. And as many of you will know, when, when God called Moses to lead the people of Israel out of uh, captivity as a slave nation, building the pyramids and the rest, it wasn't just that he was saving them from 
you know, 400 years of slavery, he actually had a purpose in mind. You know, very often in this day and age, if somebody is saved from some crisis, you know, maybe somebody's house is on fire, God forbid. You know, or, you know the, the, the fire engine and the, the, the various, um, you know, rescue agencies will turn up and they'll put the fire up and they rescue the family and praise God, you know, when that happens. Uh, but when it's all damped down, that's it. They say, well, great, now we saved you and we're going to go back to our fire station and you can get on with life. Do what you have to do. So they're just saved. But, but this is not like that. God saved the, the Hebrews as they were known, the Israelites as they became known, for a purpose. And the purpose was to bring them into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And so today's talk is entitled Taking Canaan. And it's going to be a, a read through the scripture. It's a fair chunk of scripture, but I'm going to pause after sort of a few verses and make a few comments, and hopefully we'll, we'll uh, get something out of it. So please turn with me if you have uh, a Bible with you uh, or a, you know iPhone or Blackberry. It'll come up on the screen, screen too, but let me just read through this then. So Numbers chapter 30. Numbers is a parallel account to to what we read in Exodus, and and it begins in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran, and all of them were leaders of the Israelites, and these are their names. Now, we're not going to read through all the names, but we're going to skip now to verse 17. It says this, when Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rahob toward Lebohamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built several years before Zoan in Egypt. And when they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. And two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. And at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. So, 12 spies, and that's what they were, to be honest, were sent into the land of the Canaan, the land that God was bringing them to, to check it out. And God was quite specific as to who should go. Twelve leaders, one from each tribe of Israel, twelve tribes as you know, and they were set off, sent off into the land. And they had three things, I'm not going to make a lot of this, but just a little observation. Three things that they all had in common. They were all leaders, as I've said. They all were given the same opportunity. They saw the same things. It wasn't like, look, three of us will go there, and three of us will go there, and three of us will go there. They all saw the same things. They all traveled together, checking out the land, and they were all given the same promise. And what was that promise? Well, it was right at the beginning of that little passage I started to uh, read. It says, 
uh, the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to you. That was the promise. God was giving them the land. This is what he said he would always do. Okay, got it? Right. Let's, uh, you know, read on a little bit for. But what we're going to find is that even though you may get 12 leaders with the same promise, seeing the same thing, people can see things very differently. Let's read on. Uh, beginning at verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. And there they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. It does flow with milk and honey. Now that lovely poetic reference, some of you will know this, was a reference back to the call of Moses. Because when Moses was a shepherd and was suddenly called by God to be this leader, to go to Pharaoh, to say, let my people go, God said to him, I've heard the cry of my people 400 years as, as a slave nation. I've heard the cry. I've heard their distress. And not only am I going to bring them out from under Pharaoh, not only am I going to save them, but I'm saving them for their purpose and I am taking them to a land flowing with milk and honey. A lovely, a lovely little phrase, a little description there of, of the kind of place it was. And so they've got that in mind. They've got the promises of God in mind. And so it goes on. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb, now Caleb is one of the 12 leaders, one of the 12 spies. He jumps up at that point and says, what are you, say? you know, what are you saying? He says, verse 30, he says, Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Verse 31, but the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land, the land that God is giving them, by the way. And they said, the land we explored devours those living in it all. Wow, it may be a land flowing with milk and honey. But they saw something else there. And they said, this is a land that devours all that lives there. And all the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak. They were, they were a kind of an ancient race that genetically were just like giants, really. That's the whole Anak Nephilim thing referenced in this. These guys are big. We saw the descendants of Nephilim there, and we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Boy, did these Nephilim and the rest make them feel small. Gosh. Ooh, well, that kind of gives you pause for thought, doesn't it? It really does, you know. The trouble is that when you kind of get that kind of thing, you're all excited, you're waiting in the desert, you know, you've been wandering around the desert. Yes, God has been providing food for you, manna, as, 
uh, and, and clothing and all the rest of it, as, as Anise Statler taught us a couple of weeks ago. If you missed it, check it out on the podcast. You know, you've been delivered from the Egyptians, but you're waiting to get into your own land. And the, they come back and they say, it's great. It's absolutely wonderful. And look at this fruit. Look at this food and all the rest of it. It's wonderful. But there's, only a, there's a problem. There's a ton of people there. And not just one people. There's a number of different races there. And this really kind of set them back a bit. Now, Caleb sort of jumps into the breach and says, yeah, but wait a minute. Didn't God say this is the land that he was giving us? We should go on. We should just press in. God will do it. But the other said, well, wait a minute. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm not sure whether this is the right thing to do. You know, we could get a, a severe shellacking there. You know, we've come all this way. Do you mean to say we're going to sort of get, you know, we, we could have our, our wives taken and our children killed and we, us slaughtered in battle? You know, we, wait a minute. Hang on. The trouble with fear is it's contagious. Fear is contagious. You know, you see it throughout the, the animal kingdom, and it's true of human beings as well. You know, if you, if, if you ever sort of been walking in the country, Fris and I went to a lovely little country pub on Friday, and we were walking through the country there, and, you know, as you go through, you see flocks of sheep and, and you know, cows and stuff like that. And the thing is, if one cow or one sheep gets spooked, the others don't stand around and ask, what's the matter with him then? One, one cow bolts off and the rest go, wah like that. And we have the same herd instinct. Fear is contagious. And after about 10 minutes, somebody says, what are we running for? You know, it's contagious. You know, it's fight or flight. You know, it, there, there is a sort of a use for that. But, but the trouble is when these leaders came back and said, we can't, what are you talking about? We can't do this. This is way beyond us. The next thing you know, the people are saying, oh boy, this doesn't sound good. Let's read on. Um, where am I in my notes? Excuse me. 14 verses 1 to 4. Let's have a little look at this. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. And all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt. What? Or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Fear doesn't just isn't just contagious, but fear breeds cowardice. It breeds dissent. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, when people come to me and they're agitated and they're angry and all the rest of it, I have to remind myself that, you know, often the issue is not the issue. The presenting thing is, is, is you know, they want you to deal with it. But what I as a pastor have to remember is actually behind that there's very often hurt, brokenness, and fear. And there's nothing more contagious more, nor undermining than fear. It breeds all sorts of problems. And here, not only did it breed cowardice in the, in the, in the light of God's promises and his blessing and all that he'd done, but it, lead, it led to dissent as well. There was grumbling about the leadership, grumbling about Moses and Aaron. But more than that, and this is where real offense was caused. There was grumbling against God. They actually said, the leaders actually said, 
we would have been better off in slavery in Egypt. We would have been better off dying in Egypt than being free, than being God's people. We don't want God as our master with all this kind of risk and challenge and, all ch and change and all this. We want, we want the pharaohs to be our master and their gods to rule over us. I mean, what an offense. What an offense. It's a wonder that fire didn't fall and just burn them all to a crisp. Well, we'll see what happens in just a moment, but it was an awful comment and, and their worst moment. Here they were on the very brink of taking the very land that God had promised to, a land flowing with milk and honey. Let's see what happens next then. Chapter 14, verses 5 to 9. Then Moses and Aaron, who were the leaders, fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. And Joshua, and he's the other good sort, there's Caleb and there's Joshua. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. This was a, a traditional, and in fact, to this day, in, in, in many cultures, it's still a sign of, of, of grief and mourning. They tore their clothes. They were so sort of, so uh, distraught by what the people and their leaders were saying. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, were among those who had explored the land, and they tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. God has done great things for us. He's brought us, as he said he would, when we were a slave people, into this land flowing of milk and honey. The land is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. They saw, they understood that this wasn't just rebellion against Moses and Aaron. This was rebellion against God himself. Do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. So Moses and Aaron, they go weak at the knees. These are the great historic leaders who've been through so much to bring this people out of slavery. They've worked their whole lives. They've put their very lives and reputation on the line, knowing that God saves for a purpose. You, dear friends, have been saved for a purpose. Those of you who have, have embraced the forgiveness of Christ, who've asked for his spirit to dwell within you, who've, who've come together as part of this community, this expression of God's community, you have been saved for a purpose, not just to deal with your sin, not just so that you go to heaven, although thank God for that. You have been saved for a purpose. We have been saved for a purpose. They understood that, but Moses and Aaron are so appalled by what they say, they end up face down before God. And it is the young bloods, it's, jo it, it's Joshua and Caleb, the spies, the two spies out of ten who brought back the positive report, who speak up at that moment. They say, do not rebel against the Lord. Do you, do you hear what you're saying? Do you understand what you're saying? Don't rebel against God. And Caleb, bless him, he says, we should take the land. If God's favor is upon us, we will take the land, for their protection is gone. It doesn't matter how big 
and how fancy and how many and how large and how strong the nations in that land look. Their protection is gone. I want to spend a few moments here just comparing the kind of characteristics of the ten who were saying, Let's, we'd be better off dying in Egypt, with the two. And the thing that takes my breath away, and I was obviously thinking about this a bit when I was on holiday, it, it, two things take my breath away. First off, it's, it's just how, how the book reads us. You know, we read the book, and we read about you know, events happening many, 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 many years ago, and yet the book reads us. It knows us so well. You know, I'm going to outline a few characteristics in just a moment, and oh my gosh, it is so like us today. Nothing changes. Human nature is what it is. We are all needs in need of God's redemption, his deliverance, and his purpose. Human nature is extraordinary. And the book reads us because as we look at the characteristics, as it were, sort of from afar, slightly detached, we can see ourselves in this. And the other thing that strikes me about this is that in many ways... This sort of standing at a crossroads as Israel are, will they go forward or will they go back or what will they do, is very much where we are as, at a, as a community of faith. God has brought us to this. We've got all sorts of great stories to tell. You know, 25 years of his faithfulness have brought us to this point in time. Now we're looking to, you know, to, 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 to grow and to purchase one of these warehouses next, you know, across the road, next door, wherever. There's four for sale now. It's amazing how many. They'll all be up for sale at this rate. You know, I, I hope it's the one across there, but to be honest with you, if that goes, doesn't matter the next one, you know, there's so many. It's a buyer's market, we hope. That's not the point. The point is this. I know that for many of us, myself included, I told you when I launched the campaign six weeks ago, I, I, I want to kind of, it'd be nice to kind of survey the land for a bit, you know, like nice to sort of chill out and put my feet up and all the rest of it. But then God comes to us and comes to me and says, I've saved you for a purpose. Get off your butt, stand up, dust yourself off. God is calling us. You know, we, 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 there, are, there are so much more that God wants us to do. You know, we're training up church planters. Easter Day, we sent out the Griffiths to start London Life Vineyard. You know, we did two last September. We're doing that as fast and as hard as we can go. Wonderful ministries in which many of you are involved and leading and all the rest of it. But the truth of the matter is we've, we've got to start, we've, we've got to build a youth center. You know, at the last service, I kid you not, you've heard me say we have one of the largest youth ministries, in, in, uh, children's ministries in the country. All of our children's facility was full. We have a capacity for up to about 180. And we had a lot of kids in here. They were very good, but sometimes it is disruptive. I mean, you know, you know it's happened from time to time. Uh, you know, God keeps sending people to us. And we don't want to say, no, we've got enough, you know, no more in here. A bit like that, you know, God forbid, you know. How many of you saw that film, The Titanic? You know, I don't know. I had a real, that, that film gripped me. I was appalled, almost haunted by that scene towards the end. Do you remember when all the people are in the water? And there's all these lifeboats, and they're half full. Do you remember that? Not in, do you remember that? Okay, you know the story. It's fact, it's not fiction. And people are in the lifeboats and they say, no, we can't have any more. No, it might tip the boat up. They'll be panicked. You know, they'll turn the boat over. No, we can't do that. And so they left people to die in the water. 
And do you know what? It, oh, gosh, it was like a parable to me. I remember at the time I was haunted by the idea that, that we live in a nation that's on the road to hell. I will repeat that. We live in a nation that's on the road to hell. People are going to spend eternity in hell. And yet the churches are half empty. And some of them have decided enough is enough. Now we're a church that, you know, we're a little bit low on numbers today. We are often very full here. And that's why we have these issues and parking and all the rest of it. But we cannot say to God, you know, thank you. That's really nice. We love what you've done. You've really done a nice thing with the place, etc., etc., etc. But actually, we have enough. We have, we stand at a crossroads like the children of Israel. Will they go forward into the promised land? God saved us for a purpose, just as he saved them for a purpose. Or will we turn back, preferring the slavery and oppression of Egypt? I really see that we've, we face that choice. It's extraordinary. It, it, it almost haunts me as much as the Titanic imagery. So the ten then... The ten, leaders in Israel, respected men and women. You know, the ten, they had these four characteristics. First of all, having walked around the van, land, had, having seen the land, having weighed up the arguments, having seen all this, that, and the other, they decided that the land had no future for them. They believed the land had no future. You know, uh, from a human point of view, I understand their trepidation. Are we challenged and unsettled by the prospect of raising 1.6 million and, you know, all this kind of thing? We think, oh, my gosh. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I understand that. They believed the land had no future for them. Secondly, they displayed cowardice based on fear. You know, they're bolshy, they're aggressive, they've got an opinion, they express it loudly and vociferously, but it's actually all fueled by fear. Not faith, Fear. Thirdly, and this, of the four points, I really want you to grasp this one. Jot this down. Tattoo it on the back of your eyelids if you like. They saw circumstances, they saw God rather, in the light of their circumstances. You know, I've got a pair of glasses here. I don't like wearing them. They don't fit very well. They make me feel old, but the truth of the matter is I have to wear them when I'm reading. And they are lens. There are lenses there, and I see the word. I see you through these lenses. They were looking at God in the light or through the lens of their circumstances. The controlling thing were their circumstances. Everything was interpreted in the light of their circumstances. We can't deal with those giants of Anak. It's not just one nation in there. It's about four. And they're all thriving. We can't deal with that. They saw God in the light of their circumstances. And in doing so, they belittled God. They made him small. Oh, he's not big enough to deal with that. No, 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 no. In the real world, in the world out there that the likes of Joshua and Caleb don't understand, we can't do that. That's not right. And so on and so forth. They belittle God. They belittle God. 
They saw God in the light of their circumstances. I, in 30 years of pastoring, have met people, have myself, have myself, allowed times when I have allowed my circumstances to tell me how big or how little God is. It's not a happy place. Some people live there. That's a very unhappy place. And fourthly, the ten suffered from a grasshopper complex. They saw themselves as small. You know, it is funny, actually, as we have dealt with, and it was the same, actually, when we bought this place. We find, found when we were buying this place, and as we've been talking to planners and all sorts of other people about various buildings and opportunities in this corner of the thing, we find that the world looks upon the church of Jesus Christ and actually doesn't have a very good attitude towards it. In fact, in some cases, it despises. It sees us as grasshoppers. Does that look like a grasshopper? I don't know. <laughs> Somebody has to love to teach me what a grasshopper looks like. The trouble is, often we agree with them. You know, we talk to these people, they talk down to us, they talk to, like we're a bunch of idiots, you know, a bunch of old ladies knitting, and if you're an old lady and you're knitting now, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> God bless you, you know. But we kind of think we're grasshoppers too. And that was the thing they said. They said, we feel like grasshoppers compared to them. And what's more, they think we're grasshoppers. You know, that's the way. They, they allowed their circumstances and other people's view of them and their faith and their position and their calling to define what the future was going to be. So the ten believed the land had no future, displayed cowardice based on fear, saw God in the light of their circumstances and suffered from a grasshopper complex. We can't do this. The two were so much so different. The two were the absolute opposite of the ten. The two believed they should enter and possess the land. That was based not on their strength, they were just two, but in their faith in God. Time and again, Caleb said to them, look, God has removed their protection. God is with us. God promised us. If God promised us, then he's good for it. And if you need to remind yourself, he, he led us out of Egypt. We came out there with jewels and fine robes. We crossed with the Red Sea. We were thirsty and he provided water for us in the desert. We were hungry and he provided us manna from heaven. God's faithfulness in the past gives us faith in the future. It's one of those little things we bandy around here. They believed that they should enter and possess the land, not because they'd done an intelligent assessment of the, the, you know, the forces of the enemy, but because God had said so. God was with them. They displayed courage rooted in faith. The others displayed cowardice based on fear. Courage is a game changer, and courage based on faith is an absolute. It changes eternal destinies. Eternal destinies. They displayed courage rooted in faith. You know, when, if God gives us favor, and as we, if we don't pull back, and if we press on in, and we give sacrificially, and if we buy one of these warehouses around us, there will be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who come to Christ. There will be hundreds of people who come to the poor ministry, 
who after a few weeks, to the feed ministry rather, and after a few weeks say, why are you doing this? And then they kind of sneak in the back. There are people sat here now, and this is the truth, now, and I can see, I'm not going to embarrass you by pointing you out, who started by coming to the feed ministry, and now you have come to faith, and you are part of this community, and you are being baptized, and you are serving others. Somebody shout glory, hallelujah. They displayed courage rooted in faith. They believed God. Well, God said, these guys are saying we shouldn't, but as for me and my house, I'm going to believe God. The third thing, and again, you know, if, you, if, you, if you tattooed, they saw God in the light of their circumstances on one eyelid, tattoo this under the other one. The two saw circumstances in the light of their God. The first lot said, oh, no, that can't be right. Oh, no, we can't do it. No, do you know, do you know, and people say this to you sometimes, do you know, Chris, just how much that will cost? Do you know, Chris, just what the planning problems are with that? Now, they're being sensible. They're being wise. It's not bad advice. But the trouble is, is where is the faith? If we'd have believed everything that people said to us, we would not be sitting here now. You know where we'd be? We'd probably be in St. Albans Girls' School running around with tons of equipment, setting it up, setting it down. Some of you were there, you remember what it was like. People said we couldn't, shouldn't, wouldn't, and the planners at that time said we hadn't got a snowball's chance in hell of getting planning permission for this place. Thank you, that's the right response. But there was enough of us who prayed and gave sacrificially and worked, and boy did we work, and one day we found ourselves here. And then everybody came around. I've said this before, and it makes me smile even to this day. People came up. The same people said we couldn't do it. They pat us on the back and said, well done. Jolly good job. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you know. They want to be a best mate then. <laughs> Two weeks ago, you were an idiot. It's just so hypocritical. The two sort of circumstances in the light of God. And finally, and this is probably actually the most wonderful things, they didn't see themselves as grasshoppers. They may not have seen themselves as great heroes or warriors or anything like that, but you know what they did see themselves as? They saw themselves as sons and daughters of the Most High God. That's who they were. And they believed God's word. And they believed what God said about them and who they were. Israel was God's people. The church of Jesus Christ is his people. This vineyard community is our his, we are his people. We are sons and daughters. We are not grasshoppers, even though some would cast us in that role. So the ten believed the land had no future. They displayed cowardice based on fear. They saw God in the light of their circumstances. They suffered from a grasshopper complex. The two believed they should enter and possess the lands, displayed courage rooted in faith, saw circumstances in the light of God, and saw themselves as sons of the Lord Most High. Nearly there. Let's land, bring this into land. Last, few, last couple of verses. Numbers chapter 14, verses 10. Now, up till this point, people have been talking about God. Bear in mind, as Richard taught us last week, you know, their tabernacle was there. They had the presence of God there, just as we have the presence of God infusing everything we do and say and are in this place. Suddenly, God shows up. Verse 10, but the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Let's, 
We don't want to hear what Joshua and Caleb and Moses and Aaron are saying. No, 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 don't unsettle us. No, 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 don't challenge us. No, 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 don't, no, go, no, go away. They're talking about stoning these guys, the two and the leaders. And then it says, it's very simple. That's the sentence. The reality would have been utterly terrifying. Utterly terrifying. Then the glory of the Lord appeared. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord said, and it's he who has the last word in all of this. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. You can read the rest of the judgment. It's harrowing. The ten leaders, God sent a plague upon them. The rest of that whole community, except Joshua and Caleb, wandered around the desert for 40 years, aimlessly just going through the motions until every single one of that generation had died. And it was only then that God took the new generation back to the Jordan, back to that place of being on the brink of taking Canaan. And we're going to talk about that next week. But for 40 years, they lost their purpose. They wandered aimlessly about. And oh my gosh, you know. I, I, I fear that for us. Honestly. You know, I have been in this place of being a grasshopper. I have, I have made mistakes during the course of my 30 years of ministry where I look back on them and I feel what I, I, I call them gah moments. Where I, go, I think about them and I still to this day go gah. Yeah. And I tell you this, one of the big question marks and gah moments for me is that three months into the birth of this, ch this church plant, 25 years ago, three months in, out of the blue, and in the course of a series of, of rapid succession phone calls that took place in, in, in inside from beginning to end in an hour and a half, the Royal Mail, is, as it was then, offered us 13,000 square foot of warehousing in the center of St. Albans for one pound. Uh, annual lease. Peppercorn rent. It was extraordinary. I made an idle inquiry to the wrong person about something. The next thing I know, I've got a commercial agent on the phone. The next thing I know, I've got the, the regional uh, land uh, agent for, for the Royal Mail. And they offered us 13,000 square foot on Hollywell Hill, where the Quality Hotel and the Cafe Rouge is now. 13,000 for one pound. And guess what? Guess what I said? I went into a terrified flat spin and I said no. Now we can all go, what? You crazy God, what was he thinking of? And all the rest of it. We had about 20 people in the church, and my, my rationale at that time was, we can't do this. We, we can't look after this. We, we can't maintain this. 
You know, and, and we've got more important things to do. We want to, we're, we're about people and, 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 you know, and, and, you know, ministry. It took us 15 years before we got this place. And we tried 16 times, my wife will tell you, to get something else. It took us much longer than it should have done. Other vineyards, smaller vineyards were right. They were all getting stories that it didn't help when South End Vineyard said, guess what, the Royal Mail have offered us 20, you know. And they said, yes, did not bless me. Oh boy, the book reads us, it knows us so well. Some of us turn our, fate, our noses up at God's purpose for us with all sorts of good reasons and rationality. But is it based on faith or is it fueled by fear? I'll leave you to make up your own mind. This is a teaching, a standalone teaching. This is a teaching for life. But it is also curiously pertinent to our circumstance at the moment as we talk about this growing family campaign. But let me generalize. Let me draw back from that which may be a little uncomfortable and generalize and say this. God's intentions are good. The leaders of the Israelites said, well, you know, we should have died in Egypt. We should have died in the desert. You know, God's going to take us in this land and we're going to die. We're not going to die. God's intentions for me and for you, for my family and your family, are good. Are you going to be challenged? Yes. Are you going to be discomforted and disquieted? Yes. Because everything comes through the portal of faith. And faith is a verb. Faith is a do word. Faith is something we don't have. It's something we do. And I want to say to you, if you're just visiting because you came in support of the family, dedicated and all the rest of it, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus yet. Maybe you've listened to this talk and, and what the worship and the, you know, the dedication and found it interesting or, you know, oh, wow, that's kind of interesting. I want to say this to you, whoever and wherever you are in this room. Do not doubt that God's intentions for you are good. You may be faced with many challenges. And I'm putting another one there alongside the others, and that's this. Isn't it time you gave your life to Christ? Isn't it time you surrendered finally and fully? Isn't it time... You sought God and asked forgiveness for your sin. Isn't it time you said, God, I give you my life. Do with it what you will. It's a blank check. Isn't it time you did that? Because that's what salvation looks like. And it's not just salvation from an eternity of hell. It's salvation with a purpose. And that's what the Israelites forgot in the desert. They were happy to take the gold and the jewelry and the fine clothes that the Egyptians showered upon them as they left Egypt. They were happy to be fed with manna and quail. But now they were asked to make a sacrifice, to take a chance on God and to cross the Jordan and take that land. And they went, oh boy, wait a minute, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let's talk about this. I've got a bad feeling about it, I tell you. The challenge is to trust God. It's not about a warehouse. 
It's not about a promised land flowing with milk and honey. The challenge is, do we or don't we believe in God? And if we do, there are consequences and outworkings and steps to be taken and sacrifices to be made to fulfill the promises of God. Why don't we have the worship team back up and why don't we all stand? I'm going to pray. Next week, crossing the Jordan, taking Canaan, part two. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to say thank you to you for all that you have done for us, free gratis. Thank you, Lord, that for all that you've done ahead of our response, ahead of our gift and commitment. But God, I pray this, that we would be a people, a people of faith, a people who understand that faith is spelt, as is often said in the vineyard, R-I-S-K. And Lord God, you are faithful. And we thank you for your faithfulness. And we ask, Lord God, we would not be faithless like the Israelites were, but faithful as so many of our spiritual forebears have been. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.